you have a Bible, Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're using one of our Bibles, that's page 722. If you don't have a Bible, we're also going to have the, the scriptures up on the screen for you uh, as we kind of jump in. So my, my wife, Sydney, and I, uh, we are parents to three young boys. They're seven, five, and three years old. And uh, over the last season in particular, I've become increasingly convinced that sometimes being a parent feels a whole lot like being a crime scene investigator that I'm like constantly showing up to the scene of some mess, some catastrophe. And there's all these versions of what happened like rapidly coming at me, you know, like one kid's denying it, one kid is hiding, one kid is standing there ratting everybody else out, you know. And, and kind of my job in the moment is to like look at all of the evidence, try to put it together and try to go, man, what actually happened? I think about a, a few months ago, we had had a bunch of friends from church over and they were eating dinner at our house. The kids are out in the backyard, they're playing. And it's time for everybody to leave. And so all of our friends leave and our kids come in and they're just destroyed. They're messy, they're nasty. And so they're all so young. So I'm like, I can get you all in the bathtub at the same time. We're gonna throw you in the bath. We're gonna clean you up. We're gonna put you in bed and that's gonna be it for the night. So I get all the kids in the bath. I'm getting them washing their hair. We're getting the kind of the motion going and I have to run downstairs to grab something. And I kid you not, I've been downstairs for like 25 seconds tops. And I hear my youngest son just like screaming at the top, dad, like he's just, he's screaming and I hear feet running and I'm like, this is never a good sign. If you're not a parent, I'll just clue you in. Not a good sign when those are the noises that are coming from upstairs. And so I run upstairs and we have this hallway bathroom and I still don't exactly know how it happened, but water's not just flowing out on the, uh, into the hall. It is shooting out of the door frame, like projectile water. I mean, coming out of the door, and I run in, my two oldest kids, they're like O.J. Simpson, they've just scattered, they're running, they're fleeing. My, my, my youngest son is like holding down the fort, trying to figure out how to get the water off. And I get the water off and I'm trying to clean up this like colossal mess that they're right in the middle of. And once the anger had subsided sufficiently, I'm sitting there now and I'm like, guys, what happened? And they're, and they're telling me like all these different versions of the store and all these different things that happened. But there's this one thing that we're all in agreement on. And that is, while dad was in the basement, something indeed did happen. <laughs> like, like, like something happened. That was like the one point of commonality that we had. And, and I was thinking of that this week, you know, because we come to this Easter moment. And, and there's this really fascinating thing. I don't know if you've studied it before. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what your inherited belief system is. But there's this really fascinating reality that you see across all sorts of disciplines with Christian scholars and Muslim scholars and Jewish scholars and secular scholars, historians of all stripes, there's, there's this point, although there's some places of disagreement, there's this sentiment across all these different disciplines that 2,000 years ago, there was a homeless nomadic carpenter who became an itinerant preacher who never had a picture taken of himself, never got on an airplane, never wrote a book, never led an army. And yet somehow, he has become the person upon which all of human history hinges. More books have been written about him, stories have been told, pictures have been painted, songs have been composed, universities have been started. Every time you write a date on a check, the date on that check is written in relation to the life that he lived. And although there's so much disagreement about what happened, there's this point of commonality that 2,000 years ago, something happened. It doesn't matter kind of what vein of scholarship you're in. 
most folks that I believe hold any kind of level of intellectual integrity, they all agree basically on four things around the life of Jesus. The first is that 2,000 years ago, there was a very real guy named Jesus of Nazareth that lived in the Middle East. I mean, there's all sorts of documentation outside of the Bible that points to that very real fact that he was a real guy, not a myth, not a figure, not just some sort of spiritual hero. There's a real guy. They all agree on that, or most agree on that. Kind of the second point that most scholars agree on is that this Jesus of Nazareth, he led a movement of love and peace that for whatever reason, far extended and rapidly increased after his time on earth was done. It's the second point of agreement, that he lived, that he led a movement of love and peace. The third point of agreement that most scholars have, whether they're secular or people of faith, is that Jesus was killed by the Roman government when he was around 33 years old. That he was killed by the most powerful government on earth at the time. And the fourth thing that most scholars agree on is that on the third day after his death, something happened. Something happened. Uh, I love what a man named Reza Aslan said. He's not a follower of Jesus. In fact, he's a Muslim scholar, which makes this uh, really interesting. He wrote a book on the historicity of Jesus called The Zealot. And I just want you to listen to these words from Reza. He says, the disciples of Jesus, they faced a profound test of their faith after Jesus died. The crucifixion had seemingly marked the end of their dreams, their dreams of overturning the existing system, their dreams of rebuilding the 12 tribes of Israel and ruling over the world in God's name. It seemed as though the Roman occupation was not going to be overthrown. It seemed as if there was nothing left for Jesus' disciples to do but to abandon their cause, to renounce their revolutionary activities, and to return to their farms and villages. But that's not what happened. Remember, this is a Muslim scholar writing this. He says, because on the third day after his death, Something happened. Something happened. There's a lot of theories about what that something was. You know, some people say, you know, he didn't really die. On on the third day, it's called the swoon theory. I don't want to just present one side of the coin this morning. I just want to lay it out there and, and let you wrestle with it. But some say it was the swoon theory that Jesus didn't actually die, that on the cross he slipped into a coma. And the swoon theory believes, people that hold to this theory, that he was put in the tomb. He was, he was wrapped up under 75 pounds of spices and oils and cloth. He was put in this sarcophagus, and they believe that after three days in this sealed-up tomb, he just kind of came out of the coma. He just kind of came back to life. He got stronger. He got healthier. He, he unwrapped himself. I don't know if you've ever been in a straitjacket. You don't have to admit it if you have been, but I want you to imagine how hard it would be to get out of a straitjacket after you'd been crucified. But this is what the swoon theory believes, is that he rose and that he got out of the straitjacket, that he pushed over a 2,000-pound rock that had been sealed and concreted in, that he fought off four highly trained Roman guards and then walked seven miles into town where he presented and convinced his disciples that he was back from the dead. You may believe that. That takes an element of faith to believe that, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever like stubbed your toe in the dark and then tried to walk across your living room without looking like your hip was dislocated? I mean, (laughs) uh, imagine this. But this is the swoon theory, that he didn't die, he was just there. That's that's something, maybe maybe something for you to consider. There's another theory, and the theory is called the wrong tomb theory, which is exactly what it sounds like, and that is that Jesus did die and that the disciples put his body in a tomb, but like their car keys, they just forgot which tomb they put him in. 
and they couldn't find them and that they never found them. And, and that's what some people hold to, just, just the wrong tomb theory. You can go investigate these things. These are widely sought out and searched in. There's kind of this third theory that it's called just the spiritual resurrection theory. And it's this idea that Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead, but after his death, he just appeared to a lot of people, kind of like this, this big acid trip, this spiritual uh, illusion. And there, there's a lot of kind of issues with that in my mind. One is that all of the documented cases, Jesus is eating meals, people are touching his hands, there's this, there's this physicality to it. But beyond that, there is no medical record ever of a group of people having the same hallucination at the same time. And you see this in all the historical records, that Jesus was appearing not just to one or two, but to hundreds of people. They were eating meals, they were talking, but this is a theory. There's the swoon theory, there's the, the wrong tomb theory, there's the spiritual resurrection theory, and then kind of the fourth theory. Uh, it, it's called the stolen body theory. It's what Matthew talks about in his gospel. This idea that the disciples, and I believe this is problematic. I'm just kind of laying my cards on the table. Big shocker, I'm preaching on Easter Sunday. I don't, you know, I believe he raised from the dead. Kind of my challenge with the, with the stolen body theory is it would require these friends of Jesus who were absolute cowards in his moment of death, who all ran, all of a sudden, they had to have the courage after his death to come back and to fight off four trained Roman soldiers. These untrained fishermen would have to fight off the soldiers. They'd have to roll away the stone. They'd steal the body, hide the body. And for the next 60 years, they all held true to their testimony about what they had seen, even though they would die brutal deaths for it. They all agree. He lived. He led a movement. He died. And on the third day, something happened. The question's, what happened? What happened? And how does it shape you? That's what I love about the Gospel of Luke. You know, Luke was a brilliant guy. He grew up in a city. He didn't grow up in a house that followed Jesus. He was a physician. Luke was a former skeptic, and Luke begins to see the ripple effect. He, he sees what's flowing into the hallway of the world at the time. He realizes something huge indeed has happened. In the beginning of the gospel, he's writing this letter to these Roman officials, and he's saying, I'm writing these things so that you can be certain, so you can have certainty of what it is, this audacious claim of Christianity. And it's gonna be in Luke 24, where this former skeptic is gonna share with us what it is that he's investigated, what it is that he sought out, and he's just gonna lay it out there to say, hey, something's happened, and I want you to determine how this something changes everything. Because that's the claim of Christianity. That's the fifth view. It's not just that something happened. It's that this something changes everything. And this is how Luke's gonna tell the story. In Luke 24, it's gonna pick up a few days after Jesus has died. And it goes like this, starting in verse one. These words are gonna be on the screen as well. It says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men, these are angels, in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners that he must be crucified, and on the third day, he would be raised again. And then they remembered his words. And when they came back from the tomb, 
They told all these things to the 11 and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others who were with them who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women. That's like such a guy move right there, right? Like the women come back, the guys are like, I don't believe it. Listen to this, verse 12. But Peter, however, got up and he ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. You keep going on in Luke 24 and over and over. It's gonna be a, a group of faithful and skeptics and doubters and believers encountering Jesus in some really significant ways. But, but, but I, I want us to stop down here and make sure we understand what it is that Luke, this former skeptic, is claiming actually happened on the third day. He says, it was here on the third day that these, these women went to the tomb. And I want you to notice this from verse one. These women, they go, they are looking for a dead body. They're not looking for a risen Lord. They're carrying these spices, which to us is weird because kind of in our cultural moment with the technology that we have, we don't show up to graveyards three days later with pounds of spices. That's not really the way that we roll in our culture. But in their day, in their time, when a person would die, they didn't have the same embalming technologies that we have. And this is kind of gross, so I'm sorry. But when a person would die, they would put them in this large casket, this sarcophagus. They would wrap them up. And they would put different things on the bodies that would help the bodies decompose a little more quickly. And one of the things that they'd put on the dead bodies were these pounds of spices to keep the smell down. Just imagine being in a graveyard where people are buried, not underground, but they're in uh, above ground tombs. The smell would be horrible. And so these women are showing up with spices. They're showing up with spices because they're expecting to find a body. No one's expecting the resurrection, even though Jesus had told them it was so outside of their context of understanding. It'd be like you showing up to the graveyard a few days after your grandfather passed away and you have flowers in your hand. It's just a thing that you do, right? And this is, this is what happens. They're going, they're looking for the body. It's funny to me that the angels in verse six say to the women, why do you come here looking for the living among the dead? Because the reality is they weren't looking for the living. They were looking for the dead among the dead. But I want you to notice the way that Luke starts the story. He says, these women, they come looking for a dead body. And what they find is an empty tomb. And this moment would have been terrifying. It would have been startling. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been exciting for them. I want you to picture you showing up to the, to the graveyard a few days after your grandmother has passed away. And you see a big pile of dirt and you see an empty casket rolled over. You're not going, wow, I bet you a miracle's happened. Like, like, you see that, and what do you expect? You go, that's vandalism. <laughs> like, you know, you're looking ready, you're ready to kill somebody. They show up, and they see the stone is rolled away. The body's gone. And they're going, what happened? And the angels show up and begin to help them put the pieces together. And this little passage that we finished reading, the women run out in their confusion, in their joy, in their doubt, in their fear, in their courage, and they begin to tell the disciples, and if, if you go home today and you read the rest of Luke, go home and read the other gospel accounts, one by one, these groups of people are gonna come face to face with the something that happened. And I want you to hear this like very clearly because I think it's easy sometimes, especially in American Christianity on Easter Sunday, to over-spiritualize this moment and to go, Easter is the reminder that we have hope, and it is. But that's not the primary claim of Easter. The primary claim of Easter is that God came to earth, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a sinner's death, and that on the third day, he physically 
raised from the dead by the power of God. That's, that's the ridiculous, audacious claim of Easter. It's the thing that separates Christianity from so many other world religions. Every other world religion, and I'm not saying this in a disparaging way, but they're all built around the teachings of a dead leader. Christianity claims that it is walking in relationship with a living leader who's gonna return again. And Luke says, this is the something that happened. Jesus raised from the dead. He raised from the dead physically. And Luke says, I believe in this so much, I'm willing to lose my life for it. In fact, he would lose his life over these claims. It's not a myth that he's writing down. It's not a fairy tale. If you go back and you read mythological stories that were written in and around the time that the gospels were written, they read totally differently. They sound different. The language that they use is different. I believe there's all sorts of evidence, both within the scriptures and outside of the scriptures that point to the fact that this was a physical resurrection that happened. But there's one just kind of clue right here in the story that Luke tells us that I want you to notice because it's so important. Right here in the story, Luke says the first ones who went to the tomb were who? Come on, play along with me. The first ones that showed up at the tomb were who? The women. Here's why that's really significant. was because during the days of Jesus and during the days of Luke, women were not allowed to testify in court. And so if Luke were trying to, to cook a story, if he was trying to make a case, if he was trying to perpetuate a lie, this smart, skeptical physician never would have written women into the story. But here's the deal. Luke wasn't making up a story. He wasn't trying to perpetuate a religion. Luke was investigating the facts. And he's saying, here they are. On the third day, something happened. And you just gotta, you gotta wrestle with what it is that you think happened. See, I believe that this something that happened begins to change everything when we let it. Uh, the resurrection, like when we move beyond just this kind of surface level cultural Christianity kind of thing, like when we get all the way down into this claim that Jesus is alive, I believe it begins to shift absolutely everything in life. It changes the way that we think. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we're living in this really interesting cultural moment right now. Sociologists call it a post-truth moment. Every day we're being reminded that you can't trust anyone, Right? Like everyday leaders are following, politicians are following, spiritual leaders are following, you know, people that stand on platforms are getting knocked off. Every day we're being reminded that you can't trust anybody. In a world that is filled with fake news, how can any of us believe something that claims to be the good news? We live in a moment where you have your truth and I have my truth. In fact, that's actually a phrase in our culture, my truth. And the truth, but the audacious claim of the resurrection is that Jesus is not just one truth in the crockpot of a lot of other truths. The audacious and offensive claim of the resurrection is that Jesus is the truth to which all other truths will be judged and held subject one day. And I know that's uncomfortable. I, I just want to make sure you understand what it is that we say we're celebrating today. I love what the angels say. Look back at verse six. It'll be on the screen. It's such an interesting moment here. They say, he is not here. He is risen. Don't you remember how he told you? <laughs> Don't you remember how he told you? This is such a key question here. It's as if the angels are saying, hey, ladies. Maybe not in that accent. That sounded weird. <laughs> 
The angels are like, hey, ladies. <laughs> it's like, like the angels are looking at these women and they say, hey, hey, remember that he told you that he would die and be raised again? And they're like, yeah. And it's as if they're saying, if he was telling you the truth about something as big as that, is it possible that he's telling you the truth about everything else? Is it possible that what he told you about the way you handle your money and the way you think about power and the way you forgive those who hurt you and the way you treat the poor and the way you steward your sexuality, is it possible that not just the commands but the promises are true if he was telling you the truth about that? Is it possible? Is it possible? I'm not trying to make you believe this. I'm just, actually I am, but like, like I, I, I just want you to wrestle with this. Just, let's just wrestle with this. See, when, when you begin to see that the tomb is empty, that the something happened, it begins to change everything. It changes the way you think and you begin to really wrestle with this reality that one day all of us will face death and then in that moment, we'll discover what's on the other side of it and all truths will be judged against history. It changes the way we think. It changes the resurrection, changes the way that we feel. I love this, Jesus comes back from the dead and all of the disciples, man, they're, they're overwhelmed, they're scared, they're terrified, they're frightened. It's so much like the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. You know, sociologists believe that we are currently living in the most stressed out, freaked out, terrified generation that's ever lived. It's interesting to me that the first words of Jesus to the disciples after he raised from the dead was peace to you. In a world of anxiety and of fear and of struggle, the song of the resurrection is a song of peace. And it's real peace. It's like heavenly peace. It's this peace that comes in because listen, please hear me on this. Easter Sunday does not promise you that all of a sudden you get a get out of jail free pass when it comes to pain and suffering and hardship. Easter Sunday doesn't promise us a way around those things. It promises us a way through those things with the peace of God deep intact. The resurrection changes the way we think. It changes the way we feel. It changes the way we live. You know, Jesus raises from the dead and he, he looks at his disciples. He says, hey, in Matthew 28, he says, hey, since I'm now alive, since I came back from death, I want you to know I'm in charge. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so all of a sudden, the disciples in their very real life, they have this newfound sense of both courage and clarity. Clarity for how they spend the one life that they've been given and courage to face the unthinkable. Think about our friend Whitney, who's a part of our church family here. Right now, she's in Bangladesh. And she's working in some of the most hellacious circumstances you can imagine amongst uh, these, these refugees of an unthinkable war. And she's in this refugee camp with, with disease and with heartache and with pain and with suffering. And she's in it because she's experienced the Lord who has risen and he's clarified what her one life on earth should look like. And he's given her the courage to face it. Think about our friends, the Hartmans, who them and their young children, they've moved into the Middle East to spend the rest of their life sharing the resurrected hope with those that have never heard the name of Jesus. See, something happens when the resurrection comes all the way into this. 
is it doesn't just change the way we think and it doesn't just change the way we feel. It begins to change the way we fundamentally live. It's no longer just about coming and celebrating Easter Sunday, but we start asking the Lord, hey, what are your marching orders for my life? See, this something, it changes everything, our thinking, our feeling, our living. And I, I could keep going, but I'll just give you one more. It changes the way we face the future. If you wanna know what a culture believes, what they really believe, just look at the way they face death. If you wanna look at what Americans believe, look at how Americans face death. We don't know what to do with it. We avoid it, we deny it, we run from it. We wanna stay eternally youthful. <laughs> but every day, like, I look in the mirror and I'm just reminded, even as I look at my own face, like, death is coming. <laughs> so my wife says, <laughs> she wakes up, she's like, it's getting close. It's <laughs> that so, so death is coming. And every one of you, whether you realize this or not, I'm saying this in love, just like with integrity here, okay? Every one of you, you are hedging your bet somewhere on what's on the other side of that. And Jesus says, I've been there <laughs> and I've come out on the other side and this is the claim of Easter. Not just that Jesus raises from the dead, that one day Jesus will speak and every person who's ever died will be resurrected physically. Do you know that? You'll be given a new body. Like, that's so hopeful. It's hopeful for us as we're getting older that you'll be given a new resurrected body and that heaven is not just this moment where your disembodied soul is just flying around singing random hymns. No, the kingdom of heaven will be a, a place where you sing and eat and dance and drink and laugh and touch and celebrate and build and create and worship. And resurrection is this reminder that this little span of time that we call life, this little span, is not all there is. There's more. There's more. See, something happened. And it's either the greatest, most important thing that ever happened or it is the worst lie that has ever been perpetuated by human beings that needs to be quickly abandoned. But it can't be in between. And every one of us, we have to decide, what do we do with it? Like, what do we do with the evidence? Not just of the Christian believers, what do we do with the freight of human history that says he lived, he led, he died, and something happened? And something happened. We all come into this space this morning and we have inherited belief systems. Some of you inherited doubt from your family system. Some of you inherited faith from your family system. Wherever you find yourself in the spiritual journey, the truth is inherited beliefs never serve you well when life hits the fan. And you owe it to yourself. You owe it to yourself to do what Luke did and to say, I searched this thing out. So here's what I want to invite you to do, whether you're a Christian or not, wherever you find yourself on the journey. This Easter Sunday, after you go and eat lunch with your friends and families, as you go back to work tomorrow, as you go back to your life, here's what I want to challenge all of us to do. I want to challenge you to really seek this out for yourself. Even if you think you believe it already, to really, really search it out. And here's the truth is searching things out it will be slow, it will be frustrating. At times you will feel like the women running to the tomb only to find that Jesus isn't where you thought he was. 
And sometimes the journey of seeking is frustrating. If you don't know where to begin, I'll just kind of give you two books uh, you can check out. Um, both were written by skeptics. One was a guy named Lee Strobel. He was an award-winning uh, journalist. Uh, he wrote a book called The Case for Christ because his wife became a follower of Jesus and he was frustrated that his wife would build her whole life on this fairy tale. So he started investigating this story and he, he eventually became a follower of Jesus because of what he discovered. And he, he wrote it down in a book called The Case for Christ. It's a phenomenal book. Another book that was written by a guy um, who's a skeptic is, is a book called The Rise of Christianity by a guy named Rodney Stark. And if you're interested in these things, I'll be over here by the Spawn Banner later. Come find me. I'd love to just talk with you. That's why we do this. But I'd encourage you, search it out. Seek it out. Get in scriptures. Pray. Ask God to reveal if this is true. To be humble before the Lord and to see what he reveals. Because here's what I believe is that when you seek, you find it's not just that you find a new belief system or a new habit on Sunday morning. No, when you seek, you find a God that's alive and well and still leading and returning. It's not, not about you getting a more uh, religious grip on the story. It's about you encountering the God who wants to know you. When you seek, you find. When you find, you begin to trust. Because all of a sudden you realize that this thing that we're doing together, it's not a bunch of empty beliefs and hollowed out philosophies that we're walking with a very real living Lord. You seek, you find, you find, you trust, you trust. It gives you the courage to obey Jesus, to lean into the commands, to lean into the promises. And what you find is obedience leads you to joy. Jesus says, I didn't come. I didn't come to steal the fun. He says, I came to give you life and life to the full. I love what our Muslim friend said. The disciples faced a profound test of their faith the day after Jesus died. The crucifixion seemingly marked the end of their dreams, their dreams of overturning the system, their dreams of rebuilding the 12 tribes of Israel and ruling over them in the name of God. It seemed as though the Roman occupation was not going to be overthrown. It seemed as if there was nothing left for Jesus' disciples to do but to abandon the cause, renounce their revolutionary activities, and return to their farms and villages. But history tells us that's not what happened. Because on the third day, something happened. Something happened. Father, we love you. I thank you for just the reality of what it is that we celebrate this morning. God, I pray that you would put a hunger in us, a hunger to seek that will lead us to a place of finding, that will lead us to a place of trusting, that will lead us to a place of obeying, that will lead us to a place of joy. God, I pray this morning that you would disrupt our inherited belief systems, that you would send us into places of great investigation, and that God, in your timing, in your way, just like you did with each of the disciples, you would hold out your hands, you would say, touch and feel and know that I'm with you. And that, God, we'd find ourselves living and thinking and feeling and moving into the future in brand new ways. So in the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks. Amen.